Hello and welcome back to Climate Change Unfolding. A few months ago I asked myself a question. With the time I've got, where is it best invested to maximise positive impact for climate change? And, you know, linked into that question was, what skills do I have that can really add value to what's going on right now? And of course, it's a complicated question and I'm going to, for the most part, save you from the meandering round and round that went on my head and tell you the conclusion I came to and ultimately what it came to, to be. So... Uh, my take is, at least for the most part, that the technologies we need to solve the problem already exist. And so I don't see as that, at least, as the primary limiting factor, even if there are a few things to to work out. And even if we do need more tech solutions, we're clearly a long way off being optimal from the tech that we have. You know, So what I see is lacking is political and social will. And you know, the mass population is just not as engaged as they need to be. So let me on to then how, how then to solve this problem of mass engagement. What if principles of sustainability were widely adopted by the masses? What if businesses were rapidly driving change on an un- unprecedented level into a greener and a cleaner world? And, you know, what if governments on both sides of the aisle were engaged and working together? You know, what if it wasn't a divisive issue? So, you know, what if the people were rising up? And they are, by the way. <laughs> you know, pretty amazing what's going on right now. And, uh, and demanding change, but not just demanding it, but hearing their voices heard you know so that those are the thoughts that were going around my head and wouldn't wouldn't all that be a wonderful thing you know wouldn't that be a dramatically better world but how do we go about inspiring mass change and how can i just as a tiny insignificant individual human being with no significant background in climate change play a part in inspiring that change you know imposter syndrome is (laughs) is very real with these things such a big problem you feel so small you know and what do i know in the world of specialized sort of expertise imposter syndrome rearing its dirty head (laughs) and it's crippling action again for me it was at least and so a few revelations came to me when I was driving one day, when I was thinking on these topics, and um, I was driving through Ambercourt in, in Uganda, which is, uh, most of you won't know that, but it's a kind of chaotic roadside market scene going on in front of me, like classic Uganda spilling into the road, people everywhere, billboards, taxi drivers yelling, you know, roadside stalls, there's an old, old man passed out drunk under a mango tree, you know, chickens and kids everywhere, people trying to run out in front of the car or cow tied to the back of a motorcycle, standard Uganda. <laughs> so I'm driving through this scene, I'm watching the chaos and trying not to run anyone over and, and a few things just kind of struck me all at once and this kind of vague term, what is the masses? It's just a huge spectrum of different individual people. It's not a masses problem, it's lots and lots of individual people problems and you know, and I thought, well, I know people, I'm good with people, and I'm good with solving people problems. And I've been doing that for years, you know, and it struck me right all at the same time is, I actually have a pretty random and unique background in a variety of different fields to to do with engaging people. So, you know, running businesses, sales, marketing, management, you know, performance sport, I've been involved with as an athlete and, a, and as a national team coach, you know, spent years coaching beginners, intermediates, really top level people and scared people, people who weren't scared enough, <laughs> run events, you know, fundraising campaigns, conservation campaigns. I've been meditating for 10 years and I've traveled, lived and worked in probably, I don't know, 40 countries now. So it's a pretty weird and messed up background. And so there must be something in all that stuff, I thought, that can help solve a people problem. So I guess I kind of dismissed this, <laughs> the, the imposter syndrome and I was back on a mission. So I found a sense of purpose again. Um, and so that was a bit of my next challenge it took me on a bit of a whirlwind reading research learning listening podcast 
TED Talks, whatever, and searching the stuff, of course, that's already out there about climate communication. And there's a lot of good stuff. And other things also outside of the field on psychology and social change. You know, it's, I really find it a fascinating subject. So I wrote notes, <laughs> a, lot of, <laughs> a lot of notes. And I just looked on the, my computer just before I started. And I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> Even after cutting out some of the crap, it's like 16,000 words. <laughs> I don't know how, quite how it got to that, but a little bit embarrassing. I mean, I don't know how long a PhD or a book, but I think I basically write a very short book. About <laughs> anyway, about the same time, Judy Goner, uh, who's a, I don't know, how do you describe her? A thought leader in sustainable travel, uh, invited me to speak at Sustainable Tourism Africa Summit that she organizes. And um, the same topic of engaging people with sustainability would absolutely bring value to the summit too. So I doubled up and um, I took some of the main topics um, for that talk. I did a practice presentation and it took me about an hour and a half. And I looked at the program and realized I only had 20 minutes. <laughs> so I sliced it down ruthlessly, cut out the examples, took out big chunks of what I wanted to talk about, whole topics actually, and uh, that I still think are really interesting. And so hopefully some people at the conference are going to hear the, uh, uh, this as well. And so that 20-minute teaser um, was a little bit, uh, or some of the bits, from uh, maybe hundreds of hours of research from a wild mix of different fields. But this is the unabridged multi-episode version with the juicy details, tools and tricks and examples and stories, and, and I hope um, that brings it all to life, and I hope you find it interesting, but really, I want you to find it more than just interesting. I want you to take some kind of idea that you have, or a piece of research, or a business or a brand and use the concepts I'm talking about to inspire change for the better, inspire engagement. I want, I want you to engage more people with your ideas. I want you to go away with the power to win over the people that need convincing in order to get whatever you need to happen. And, but not in some sort of sordid, sort of sneaky way, but with like powerful dialogue that align your ideas with their values, you know, bringing value to them at the same time as uh, an inspiring change. So that's what I'm trying to achieve with it all. There's huge social movements right now, the school strikes and the extinction and rebellion and others that are sweeping the grove. And if you're part of it and listening, all the better. Those fires are already raging. You know, I, I want to <laughs> pour petrol on, on those fires that are already raging and make them explode out into the masses even quicker. <laughs> Eco-friendly, zero-carbon petrol, obviously. <laughs> Probably a bad analogy. Okay, ultimately, I want these next episodes to help you be wildly successful with your sustainability work. So this is part one of Engaging the Masses fueling the fire is there something to do with the current status quo of climate change and sustainability that you'd like to see changed anything some kind of improvement in any area of sustainability now given you're listening to this podcast i'm just going to go ahead and take a stab in the dark and assume the answer is yes I posed the same question to the room in the sustainable tourism africa summit i just attended and as you'd imagine pretty much 100 percent put their hands up that's not the interesting question the real interesting question then is how much do you want that change to happen? So let's call that your sustainability motivation. So if you look at the history of social change, you don't see many influential change makers who are half-hired, only vaguely interested in changing the culture. You know, Greta doesn't stand up in front of uh, you know world leaders and say, hi, I'm Greta, I'm 16 years old. I'm, I'm here to talk to you about the fact that I'm not quite sure what I want more, ice cream or climate action. <laughs> you know, no, she, sorry, that's a terrible example. But, she, you know, she wants a, a real sense of clarity. She's powerful. She's motivated. And that motivation makes her courageous and bold enough to make a stance. 
history is littered with examples of people with real clear vision and real strong motivation. So Martin Luther King, Gandhi, and a million other sort of less high profile examples. So you need a bit of steely resolve to make change happen. And motivation to act actually underpins pretty much everything. If you ask the general population the original question of whether they'd like to see something or anything done to improve sustainability, I'd say massive proportion of people would say yes, probably 90-95%. How many people realistically are in direct support of decimating the world's natural environment, including all the wild animals? How many people would like to see at least something done to protect that? Do the huge silent middle of population want enough to do something serious about it, to act? And the answer, I would say right now, is no for the most part. So the good news is that motivation is not constant and it can be cultivated, it can be brought out in us and we can be inspired to act. Even people who are in active in sustainability issues or at least the mere mortals amongst us who realistically go through big periods where we're totally unmotivated to get up and do something and know about these enormous problems. All of us, right? You know, we all have those ups and downs. And I lost sight a little bit on the things that were really important to me. I eventually zoomed out, got some clarity on what it is I want and, and why I want it and Things are now totally back on track and I'm feeling good again, but it happens to everyone, right? Um, So without sufficient motivation, nothing truly special is going to get done. And if you want the masses to act, you're going to have to motivate them somehow as well. And you want yourself to act in an empowered way. You're going to have to motivate yourself too. So we used to discuss, uh, as a side note, managing our state a lot in high-performance sports. So imagine you train for two years for world championships and then you get two 45-second runs, which is the reality of the sport that I was competing in. You know, it's all sorts of pressures, self-imposed, external pressures. And you, you can't just have an off day and it's so easy to screw it up. And it's just, it's just heartbreaking when you've been mentoring someone for years and then it all goes tits up and just you know on the big day and you've got to manage your state and you've got to learn to put systems in place that that help manage it for you you know so since competing the things I used in that area of my life I also use all the time in my day-to-day life to form my habits to pay attention to what I'm thinking and feeling and ultimately to do something about it if uh, if something's amiss so I think it's <laughs> I think it's probably best if I don't launch into the inner workings of my own mind <laughs> nobody really needs that but there are a couple of general concepts around sort of state management that that I'd like to talk about. So one is to really win here. You want to work on setting up your life in a way that doesn't rely on you feeling super inspired and super committed all of the time because it's just not realistic. So, you know, to turn it into performance sport again, nobody in performance sport debates about whether to get out of bed to do their competition run that they're building for two years training to do. But, But when you're still a year away and it's winter and it's raining outside, do you really want to get up and grind through a training session you're not that inspired or freezing cold river in my circumstance I was kayaking so so don't uh, rely on being inspired all the time and don't just and don't look at other people and think that person is always so inspired and put them on a pedestal like you know I don't have the motivation she does that's why I can never get things done that's it's just a fallacy that's just putting stories on other people that just aren't necessarily true so this is what we do in performance sport you know you use your inspired periods to set up systems that make it easy for you to do the right thing and hard for you to do the wrong thing day after day you know you're really winning when you're getting good things done on an uninspired day so let me 
think of an example, a really simple household example in sustainability pool. Let's say you're feeling inspired to do something serious about household waste, but don't meticulously go through that day's rubbish and sort it perfectly. You know, direct your energy into a system that so that the easy thing to do is to sort your rubbish as it comes in. So even on a busy, stressful day where you can't be bothered about sustainability at all, you sort your compost and your recycling. And you get if you get the system right, you make it easy to use. And before long, it just it just becomes a part of who you are and what you do and how you do things. There's no cognitive exhaustion or moral dilemmas each time and you know minor slips that sort of end up in a slippery slope back to what you always did you know you're not white knuckling it it's just a new way of living and that's just what you do use that short burst of motivation then to set you up for long-term success can be really disheartening to look at all the big things going on around you and really unempowering you know when you see things happening on such a huge scale small things still matter and they matter a lot. And that might sound like a slightly gimmicky motivation talk, but I'm going to give you actually a solid logical framework to build that around to back up what I'm saying there. Climate change is a good example, and, and you know, it's my primary passion here, but, but you could use any core sustainability measure. I want you to imagine a spectrum. On one side, we have the worst case climate change scenario. Six degrees of warming, all the tipping points have been hit. Things spiral into worse and worse scenarios. We end up with a collapse of modern civilization, particularly in the developing world. The entire society collapses long before the Western world does. 95% of the world's species are under threat or extinct and habitat destroyed all over the globe. Wide-scale ecological collapse. You know, 6 billion people die in wars, disease, drought, famine, and all whole range of other insane natural disasters. So that's the worst end of the spectrum, right? And then over on the other side, we take perfect action, mass mobilization. We stop emitting. We live healthy, happy lives in a sustainable world. All our kids are allowed to live healthy, happy, long lives filled with opportunity, um, but a new sort of sustainable society. And so um, are the majority of the world's ecosystems. We save as much as we possibly can of the natural world. So those are two ends of the spectrum, right? Chances are, realistically, we're going to end up somewhere in the middle. Every single action that either releases some sort of carbon or reduces some carbon pushes us in a tiny way, in one way or the other. So Trump gets elected, pulls the USA out of Paris, we shift a whole chunk towards the disaster end of the spectrum. It might, say, lead us towards another 200 million people dead, for example. And that's not even that wild, by the way, which is mind-blowing. And half a billion refugees, 10,000 more species extinct, but whatever the, the exact numbers. But the point is, even if Trump's doing that, doesn't mean that you taking some small action to bring things a little bit more sustainable making emissions reductions you also shift our entire collective fate a little bit the other way too the thing to realize here that i find incredibly motivating it's not just big numbers on the emission side but also big numbers on the consequence side on the other end the difference between the human deaths for example in a perfect climate change scenario and the, and the worst case scenario you know, is that's billions of people even small actions could tip the balance between saving a life. You know, that's a spectrum, right? So you move it a little bit towards the, the cleaner, safer end of the spectrum. You could easily make the difference between saving a life. Or, alternatively, it could be the difference between someone dying and a pr pretty bleak and terrible climate-related death in the future, you know? Sadly, there's a disconnect. Imagine if there wasn't for a minute. Imagine if someone living a high emissions lifestyle took a range of lifestyle choices and at the end of the year, as a direct result, had to look someone in the eye as they died in front of them, knowing full well that they'd made 
different choices that person would be alive. Imagine if they had to witness it. Imagine if they knew that person and there was a direct connection between that death and their omission. You know, and there is some kind of connection. And apart from looking people's eyes and knowing for sure how that person dies, that's, that's all sort of pretty reasonable logic. It's also not that wild because a very small portion of our population and companies are responsible for a massive majority of the emissions. And there's not just, you know, it's, it's nice to just pin it on other people. <laughs> but realistically, I need to take responsibility for myself and we all do it. You know, you know if, you, but if you're earning $32,000 a year or more, that makes you in the top 1% of the world's earners. So when everyone's talking about that elusive 1% that earn, you know, however much, that's us. If you are earning that much or, or close to that, you know, certainly in the 2%, that would be the vast majority of Western society. So, so <laughs> if that sounds really bleak and depressing. There's a good side of this too. If you reduce your emissions, even in a small way, the same can be true in the opposite direction. You know, what if you tip us very, very slightly towards a safer world and you tip the balance also on the spectrum of human lives, of the number of refugees brought down a little notch and the number of dead plants and animals. And imagine if you could meet the person that you saved the life of. Imagine if you, you know, they came so close to, but survived and they say, thank you. Thanks for giving me my future. Thanks for giving me a chance to live my life and to love my kids and love my family. And thanks for doing the right thing. What if you have the power to influence change, but not just in a tiny way, but a much bigger way? What if you have a big platform? What if you inspired actions that saved hundreds of people? Imagine those people living out their lives, loving their children, laughing, crying, joy, you know, and everything else that a wonderful, complicated lives are, you know? So they're doing that because of you. Ultimately, what I'm saying is there is a realistic, logical connection between emissions and the consequence, but it's not direct enough that we can really feel it tell you what i've got this is another idea that i had by the way and i've got a challenge for any climate scientists listening or researchers and if you do it and you do it right it could command incredible power when it comes to engaging people actually dan smith i know you're listening i'm talking to you here right so we know the total amount of emissions since the beginning of the industrial revolution right that's easy well documented we can also work out what our individual or a business carbon footprint is that's also pretty easy you know What's missing? What someone needs to do, <laughs> these scientists need to, somebody needs to grow some balls and put some actual numbers on the worst case. 10 billion dead over the next 100 years. 4 million species extinct. 1 trillion wild animals dead. What happens if we go to 6 degrees, guys? Worst case scenario. Put some numbers on it. And I know there's difficulties in terms of true science because there's so many factors and unknowns. But if you do that and put whatever scientific caveats and contexts and references you want to, to not undermine the message, but even as a thought exercise, we can make the connection directly between action and consequences. The uncertainty with it all is a massively undermining the action. So let's imagine, let's say, that we could say 40 tons of CO2 causes one extra person to die. 1,000 tons of CO2 is enough to put another species extinct. And by the way... <laughs> When I, when I was thinking about mentioning this in the podcast, I thought I'd just get a ballpark for how many living beings there are on this planet. And I found this amazing answer that I couldn't avoid sharing. So this is how many living beings there are on, on planet Earth right now. <laughs> oh, God. Okay, 32 septillion, 79 sextillion, 979 quintillion, 447 quadrillion, 57 billion, 260 million, 
and then with a caveat that says, but that may be lowball, reference links below. <laughs> to be fair, that is just a cure answer. So I don't know what the, I didn't look at the reference links, but you get the general gist, it's quite a lot. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna move on from this in a second, but imagine the power if we did have direct connection. You know, I've just been to a Sustainable Tourism Africa conference and Judy, the organizer of the conference, imagine if I could go to her and say, look, all of the flights people collectively use by traveling to and from the conference and tell her we've directly contributed towards two people dying. <laughs> that has some power to inspire human action. We better make sure we do some good stuff and we better make sure we offset our carbon. We better make sure that the actions that we go away, you know, ultimately lead to carbon reduction that is massively over, overwhelming the, the emissions that we did for the conference. Because if not, what are we doing here, you know? We're going there to talk about making the world a better place, but in doing so, sealing the fate of two people in the future, you know? So, so anyway, go scientists. <laughs> go get us some numbers and send them to me and uh, let me loose on the world. <laughs> All right, back on track pull this little rant together then it's it's empowering to know that your actions matter even if they're small and it's powerful to know that whatever is happening globally out of your control it still matters and you can make things a little bit better with your own actions and that might just make all the difference in the world to someone so there are so many things that we can do to cultivate our own motivation you know surrounding ourselves with the right people uh, reaching out to the right people reading articles online books you know documentaries podcasts there's so much stuff out there that we can surround ourselves with um even things that are not directly related to sustainability just work out what it is that that helps get you fired up music is a wonderful thing music speaks to people you know close to their heart so to sort of summarize this section to drive change you ultimately need enough motivation and the more you are moved the more power you have to affect change. And remember that motivation can be cultivated both in yourself and in others. So work out what you need to keep the fire burning brightly. So that was part one of engaging the masses, fueling the fire. And it covered only a small part of it. You know, it was talking about sustainability motivation, but there's a lot more strategy about how we actually go about it once the motivation is there. But, you know, the motivation ultimately is, is the foundation. We, we need to want change enough before we actually get going on how to go about it. So the second part coming up, as soon as I can, is about changing the culture. It covers how does the culture change? You know, how have the big social movements of the past inspired change? And how are the big climate change social movements that are exploding right now having real life effects? And and how do we help boost them along, you know? Ultimately, it's actually about how do you as an individual spread your ideas explosively and powerfully through the culture. I'd love for these episodes to be shared far and wide. So if you can, tell someone about it, either online or in person, by review or whatever means that you have to communicate to people. And I'm interested to hear from you. Don't leave me all alone. <laughs> all by myself through a microphone talking to anonymous online audience you know i want to hear from you as human beings and and i hear i want to hear what you're thinking you know about this subject or others so you can connect on twitter at sam james ward and by email directly at sam at climatechangeunfolding.com there is a newsletter that i've set up to keep up to date on what's going on with climate change unfolding and the and all the different projects we've got going like the uh, trees and bees project so i'll keep people posted on that if you want to sign up just go to the website and stick your email in but for now i'm going to sign off say thanks for listening we'll see you next time for part two of climate change unfolding engaging the masses changing the culture